Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome all of you who are watching this live stream and all of you who will watch it later on YouTube. This is one of over 700 programs that the Commonwealth Club has done since the pandemic began, uh, using our facilities to keep bringing you the programs that we brought you live before that. Now, uh, today we have Jacob Mishangama from Denmark, who is here to speak about his book, um, A History of Free Speech, uh, From Socrates to Social Media. And... uh, we have Jacob here from uh, Denmark, and uh, we're going to talk about, well, first of all, free speech is obviously part of our culture, part of the American uh, Bill of Rights, uh, a very important thing to the founders. Uh, but much more than that, as Jacob uh, says in his book, it's about the culture of appreciating free speech. Um, and the history of that we'll also talk about. But it's important, I think, for everybody to understand that authoritarianism is pretty much the the default mode in human affairs and has been for thousands of years. Um, Probably an outgrowth of our narcissism that we just want everybody to do what we want them to do. Um, And if you get in power, that's how you behave. Um, On the other end of the spectrum, of course, is chaos. And chaos is even less attractive to, to human society than the authoritarianism. So somewhere in between, how much freedom can we have? How much free speech can we have? Where do the lines get, lines get drawn? And, and what can we learn from history about where it's mistaken where we draw those lines? So thank you very much for joining us from Denmark, Jacob. Um, yeah, thanks, George. Actually, I'm, uh, I'm, right now I'm in a hotel in D.C., but it's right oh, on. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm based in Copenhagen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Um, so first of all, how, I know that you've started a foundation uh, also uh, to promote this idea, which you did several years ago. So why don't you tell us about why you did that. Um, you're a very young man. You, you got started at a, at a very young age to, to push this idea and bring it to, to society. Uh, I mean, a, a clearer idea about what we should do about this. Yeah. So the reason why, you know, I'm born and raised in, in cozy, liberal, secular um, Denmark, uh, where free speech was, was taken for granted for much of, of my youth. And I didn't really think about it. And then, as some of you might remember, a Danish newspaper published a number of cartoons depicting the, the, the prophet Muhammad, which sort of um, created a uh, what I would call a global battle of values over the relationship between free speech and religion, and suddenly Denmark became the epicenter of of this uh, debate, and uh, and and that very much forced me and, and many other Danes to think about, you know, why is, is this value so important? Is it important? Why does it matter? Um, also because a, n- a number of people who w- would have previously seen themselves as champions of free speech got cold feet because they saw the cartoons mm-hmm. as basically punching down on a vulnerable minority and therefore that, you know, there should be limits on free speech um, on, uh, or at least that it should not be exercised in what they would call an irresponsible manner. And then later on, I saw how people on the right who very much supported free speech during the cartoon affair uh, suddenly were willing to 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 be were in favor of limits on free speech targeted at minorities so i.e uh, extremist muslims um, um and and so principle was in very short supply mm-hmm. and 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 so i was interested in you know if free speech is such an important you know part of free and democratic societies how 
you know, why are we so unprincipled about it? And, and, and what is it that seduces us into uh, accepting free speech for me, but not for thee? And, and, and how do we create robust cultures of, uh, of, of, of free speech? Um, and, and, you know, who were the ones who paved the way for the, for, 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 for the degree of free speech that we take for granted in many open democracies uh, today? So, so that's what a large part of the work in, in, uh, in the think tank that I run, but also this podcast called Clear and Present Danger, mm-hmm. a history of free speech, which went before the, the book and, and which uh, runs into, I think, 42 episodes or something like that. <laughs> wow, that's great. Uh, certainly, uh, your history shows that we just have to keep reminding ourselves about its value and the value of the principle. But there, you know, a, a, another principle you know, that's not the same at all, but has the same sort of issue, you, the principle is there so that during tough times, you remember what you're supposed to do. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not. It's not really all that. The principle isn't that useful when everything is going smoothly. Exactly, and I think you know we tend to forget that in in uh, in open democracies because uh, we've been lucky enough not really to have to to fight for it for 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 a long time. So you know. You and I can sit, uh, you know, on, 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 you know, you're on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast. We can we can speak, you know, uh, directly, even though we're 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 thousands of miles apart. And you know, I can I, I sit here as a guest in the United States. I can criticize uh, the president, the past president, powerful um, politicians, uh, and no one will uh, will arrest me. But if you and I were sitting in Russia or Iran, mm-hmm. uh, someone uh, would be waiting for me down in the lobby. Uh, and I would, uh, you know, be disappeared into some prison never to be heard of uh, again, or if I was lucky, being put on a plane and and and, and never be able to return to to, to the country. Mm-hmm. And, and but but you know, when we're having this discussion, and and you at the Commonwealth Club, you have hundreds of these discussions, all kinds of topics that you can freely discuss. But I don't think that we we don't tend to think of it as exercising our First Amendment freedoms. We're just mm-hmm. having, you know, we're just having discussions as as everyday. But you know, as we can perhaps return to, there have been many periods in the history of the United States where all kinds of topics that we today take for granted were prohibited, um, were, were the, the, even despite uh, the First Amendment, uh, you know, they, there were laws, whether at the state or, or federal level, that, that prohibited, for instance, criticizing the president or, or, or Congress or speaking uh, out against slavery or speaking out against racial segregation, speaking out in, in favor of the rights of women and, and, and so on. These are, are, are topics that we today, you know, take for granted that, that we can discuss and address. But that was not the case, uh, not that terribly long time ago. And that, that's why I think those are the stories and I, lessons that we need to learn today and sort of say, this is, this is really what's at stake. So we can't just, you know, take it for granted, this freedom, and then think, oh, well, that was in the dark past. Now we, we know so much better. So we, you know, we are omniscient and, and you know, we, we, can li- <laughs> we, we can limit free speech without any of the, 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 the you know, negative side effects. Yeah. Um, the principle that we seem to have forgotten uh, fairly recently that is... Uh, similar, it's a principle that you put on the shelf and use when you need it uh, or, or, or forget about it at the wrong time. And that's torture. You know, the, for, for decades, yeah. everybody talked against torture. The, the, the Turkish government was always not allowed to join the EU because it allowed it officially and so on. But, but when something happened to us, we immediately turned to it um, and forgot what's the purpose. The purpose of that principle is so that when you feel like doing it, you don't. Um, yeah. 
And, and uh, you, you made a, a nice comment earlier, uh, just before we started, about how Republicans and Democrats thought about something between 2017 and 2021 about the media. So why, why don't you tell that little story? So we frame it, and then we'll go back to the history. Yeah, you know, at least since 2016, sort of the, the, the whole concept of mis- and disinformation or fake news, as a certain former president liked to, 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 to label it, has been a huge part of our conversation, not least due to, to social media. And so back in 2017, when, when, when President Trump was constantly railing against the so-called fake news media, who, whom he labeled the enemies of the people, he talked about opening up libel laws that would make it easier for people like himself to go after and to uh, the, the media when they wrote something that he didn't like. And, uh, and then there was a poll, I think it was published in The Economist, which showed that a plurality of, of Republicans, something like 43 percent, were in favor of granting the president powers to punish the media if they, you know, if they, if they sort of reported things that were biased or, or inaccurate. I, I don't have the exact wording uh, of the poll. Uh, and, of course, Democrats were, were, were very skeptical uh, that didn't support this at all. And then fast forward to 2021, when, we're, when misinf and disinformation is very much set in, uh, you know, amidst the, the pandemic. Um, and, and, of course, also uh, the, the, the 2020 election and, and sort of the tsunami of conspiracy theories that were that, that were launched by 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 Trump after that you now see that Democrats support the, the federal government and private tech companies to do much more about misinformation whereas Republicans are dead set against it mm -hmm. and, and 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 so but but the, the idea is that you know if you changed you know if you changed the law, Back in 2017, if if you know by if you had had the power to sort of override current First Amendment protections, that principle would have you know protected you know it, you know restrictions on free speech basically always protect those who are in power. So that mm -hmm. would have protected Donald Trump at the time. Uh, so his government could you know have have sued you know New York Times or CNN. He he did that, but but typically unsuccessfully. Uh, whereas you know uh, today it might have been 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 Democrats. Uh, so the danger is, of course, that the law will be you know will be used in a politicized, tribalist, and deeply partisan uh, manner uh, to uh, to to protect those who are in power, uh, and 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 then you risk, of course, it being you know, uh, being rather than, than sort of being the beneficiary of restrictions on, on free speech, you risk becoming the target when power changes uh, hands and, and, and suddenly the laws against misinformation that you uh, were willing to, to, uh, to advance uh, at one point, will, will, you will see them as, as oppressive and authoritarian uh, at, at a later point. There's a great line in the play A Man for All Seasons by Robert Bold about Thomas More where there's an argument between Thomas More and his son-in-law, uh, Roper. Um, and uh, Roper is uh, a adamant and, and vigorous uh, young man, and he's saying, we, we need to stop Satan from all the misinformation that he's you know, giving out in our society about you know, these religious issues, which were roiling at the time. And, and, so, and Thomas More says, are you not going to give him due process of law? Are you not going to give Satan <laughs> due process of law? Well, of course we won't give Satan due process of license. In that case... Once he's, you've trampled over the law, there's no law left once he's at your, at your door. Yeah. yeah, yeah it, it's and, it's and, an old argument. And it's, uh, yeah. you know, it's interesting that one of the Catholic saints argued in favor of giving due process to Satan. Um, and I think that's, that's what made it a nice, 
little vignette in, in, uh, in describing, describing how he thought about things as a lawyer. But yeah. you, you also, uh, in your book, mention uh, one of the few times that has been put into law, but the Sedition uh, Acts uh, that John Adams put in as president, um, they had a sunset provision that it came to an end at the day of the next election, just in case they lost the election. I thought that makes it perfectly obvious <laughs> what you were just yeah, talking about. Yeah, it makes it perfectly obvious that you're, you want to shut down their side, but just in case. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, I think that's a, that's a great reminder. So you have sort of uh, arguably the, the, the greatest generation of, of Americans. You got, your, you know, your Adams, your, your Hamilton, your Washington on one side of the Federalist, and you've got your, your Madison and, and, and Jefferson on, on the side of, of the Democratic Republicans and the Federalists. Uh, at the time, sort of control the presidency and, 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 and majorities in Congress, and they used the Sedition Act to basically go after uh, their, their critics uh, in the press, and, and both politicians and, and newspaper editors are basically imprisoned for writing uh, things uh, uh, about Adams. Um, and, and, and as you rightly said, you know, and, and so, so, so Congress and the presidency was protected, but not the vice, not the office of the vice president, because that was Thomas Jefferson. And, he, <laughs> and, and of course, the Federalists didn't mind, you know, they, they were doing a great job of going after Jefferson, accusing him of all kinds of things, uh, but they didn't want him to be uh, protected. So, so the partisan nature of that was, 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 was obvious. And, and, and these, remember, these were, you know, these were men that, you know, prior to and, and, and during the Revolutionary War, those, those who had been part of that too, had, had argued that, you know, British restrictions on free speech uh, were sort of akin to slavery almost, um, mm. and, and, and that united them in, in, in their cause, uh, 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 you know, in, for, for independence, where, where free speech was sort of seen as the bulwark of liberty. Uh, but then suddenly when the Revolutionary War had been won, when free speech uh, was entrenched uh, constitutionally, ultimately, it, it amplified their differences. It no longer bound them together to a common cause. Their political differences were, were, were amplified and, and sort of with the threat of war against France uh, in, in 1798, um, the, the, the huge political polarization just meant that, um, that, that, that they didn't no longer, I guess, trusted each other sufficiently to, to, to ensure that the, the great bulwark of liberty um, extended to, to, to both sides in, in the political debate among people who, who, had, who, who had recently been, been united in their cause for sort of American independence and, and freedom. Uh, so, so I think that's a very instrumental thing, you know, if, uh, and, 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 and interestingly, you know, even though Jefferson was a, was a harsh critic of the Sedition Act and, and, and you know, in his inaugural address, when he'd won the presidency, he gave a, a great speech in which he said, you know, we're all Federalists, we're all, we're all Republicans, and, and sort of saying that, uh, you know, we can, we can handle our differences out in the open, we shouldn't punish that through laws. But then in 1803, when he's, you know, been president for a couple of years, he himself has his name dragged through the mud in the, in the Federalist press, and he writes these private letters where he says, you know, maybe it's time to, that, that some of the Federalist newspapers are being prosecuted uh, mm -hmm. in, uh, in, in, uh, in various states, uh, and some of them were. So he didn't, you know, he, he didn't push for a new sedition act, but it showed, you know, even Jefferson um, was, was willing to compromise on, 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 on free speech when, when it really uh, got to him. Yeah, people, once they get power, they get tired, and that, that's your history is filled with it. They get tired, actually, of, of everybody 
complaining about them. Um, I don't know if today's social media will help us get over that because uh, the chat rooms are filled with everybody's complaints. And if you, if you just listen to the complaints, that's fine if people complain. I think one of the things that we don't pay attention to about all that is that when people are saying when they're angry certain things, that doesn't mean they think that all the time. You know, if people in a marriage uh, took seriously all the angry words that were said, <laughs> you know, it'd be very hard to hold a marriage together. And I think the same thing should be true about our societies. People should have an, an option, an opening for saying their angry words and then going back home and forgetting about it again. Um, so, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's uh, uh, something that I didn't have the room for in the book, but it's sort of the old sort of Roman Stoics had this attitude towards insults that that they you know you shouldn't you shouldn't take them to heart you should ignore them or or even sort of make light of them or even sort of laugh if you laugh at yourself uh, mm-hmm. if you were being if you were the butt of, of, of a joke mm-hmm. and i think we I, I think you know there's certainly you know free speech does come with costs and harms some of those harms can be serious you know we can mm-hmm. talk about perhaps the january 6th attack on the capitol i don't think that would have happened without without social media but there's a lot of of you know as you as you rightly mentioned there's a lot of things being written you know in uh, in anger or 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 in the heat of the moment on on social media that you know if we can develop a more detached attitude to what your crazy uncle joe writes uh, at one at 1 a.m on facebook (laughs) you know (laughs) uh, you you don't necessarily need to get agitated uh uh, about that um uh, so so i think you're absolutely right but i think it's very difficult for humans to do you know we're, we're we're sort of in the midst of of uh, of moving from sort of the the analog age into the fully digital age, mm-hmm. and and it's a completely new mindset. It's a new culture of communication. It happens at a, at a very different pace than mo- than most of us have have been used to and have ever experienced. And and so I think it will take a long time before we've de- developed sort of the mental modes, uh, the culture, the institutions to, to, uh, to cope with living in the digital age. And, 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 and I think for a while we'll, we'll, we'll be likely to engage in, in sort of moral panics about what is being, uh, about what is being said and, 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 and written. And, and, you know, sometimes these panics um, are born out of real concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the problem is that very often the cure proposed is worse than the disease, especially yeah. when, it, when it comes to censorship and, and restrictions on, on free speech, as, for instance, the Sedition Act is, is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, another element, I think, with social media and our current culture is that uh, we have other social goals besides free speech. Uh, one of the social goals is to give voice to the voiceless, people who didn't have access, and now the Internet has made that possible. Well, people, I think, were expecting those voices to sound just like theirs, you know, <laughs> but they don't. I mean, the reason that, they're, that they've been voiceless because before people did not want to hear what they had to say. Now, th- this is what they want to say, and people are going, well, I don't want you to say that. So I think people have got to get used to the fact that everybody can have a voice, and everybody can, you know, that's the whole point of a democracy. Everybody can have an input, and we just have to agree on a few small things, that, that, that are the rules of the game. We don't have to agree on what you think about your Uncle Joe and his ideas, all that kind of stuff. It, people can, can be all over the map with their ideas and not really get in our way. And I think it'll take time to get used to that idea. Yeah, no, no, definitely. I think what we're seeing today with social media is sort of 
a rerun of a recurrent theme throughout the history of free speech. So I, I talk in the book about two competing concepts of free speech. One of them is a an egalitarian conception of free speech, which dates back to the Athenian democracy, which um, for the time, uh, not by our modern standards, was 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 very egalitarian in the sense that all freeborn uh, male citizens uh, could participate directly in democracy, so they debated and voted directly on the laws. But they also had a cultural practice of free speech called parisia, which means something like uninhibited speech, which meant that even foreigners, uh, someone like Aristotle, for instance, uh, um, could could engage in in free speech and you know poke fun at the gods and 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 and, and their social betters. Um, of course, there were limits, as Socrates found out. But but <laughs> but this is a very a different concept to the one uh, that dominated the Roman Republic, which was much more a top-down conception of free speech in which. The, the the sort of senatorial elites, uh, people like Cicero and Cato, were the ones who engaged in free speech and where the ordinary plebs, the unwashed mob, did not have a direct voice in, in assemblies, for instance. And those two concepts have, have been battling it out. And, and we see what I call elite panic break out every time the public sphere is democratized or is expanded mm-hmm. to, to, to previously voiceless groups, whether, whether it's through you know, new technology, it could be the printing press, it could be the telegraph, it could be, uh, it could be radio and, and now the internet, but also when it's went through political reform, sort of extending the right to vote to, uh, to or equality to, to racial or religious minorities, to women mm-hmm. uh, and, and so on. You see the elites that were sort of the institutional gatekeepers and they had a privileged access to shape and participate in the public sphere that they fear the effects of giving uh, a voice to to sort of um, groups that they seem uh, that they view as too uninformed or credulous or fickle or mm. undeserving of of a voice in in the public uh, uh, in the public sphere so so i think that that's 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 very much what we see right now when it comes to to uh, to social media, and again, you know, some of the elite panic, you know, um, is is uh, has has real concerns. As I mentioned, you know, there are harms um, and, and costs of of uh, of having free and equal access to 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 speech. It can it can lead to you know ultimately even to to violence and and, and misinformation can uh, you know increase the risk of a pandemic getting getting out of hand. Mm-hmm. But again. I would say, say, sort of historically, uh, the, the the cure is worse than the disease, and I think that is especially true when it comes to minorities. So today, I think, especially among sort of liberals and progressives, there's this idea that free speech entrenches unequal power relations and is hurting minorities because it allows, mm-hmm. you know, white supremacists or bigots and, and racists to have a voice that you would not see previously because no one, you know, an editor at the LA Times or uh, would not publish uh, something from, you know, the local branch of the neo-Nazis. Right. Uh, whereas today, you know, they can go online and, and, and they can spew their spew their hatred. But I would, I would say that, you know, free speech might be the most powerful engine of equality that human beings have ever stumbled upon. And it has been essential for minorities and oppressed groups. So I'm sitting here in, in D.C. I'm very close to Lafayette Square. Mm-hmm. And so in 1917, you had American uh, women 
protesting outside the White House uh, for the right to vote. And I think they were, were burning uh, an effigy of, of, of President uh, Woodrow Wilson at the time. And they were arrested and fined many of, of, of these women. So I was living in New York in 2018 uh, with my family, and I took my son to a museum on the Upper West Side. And then when we left the museum, there was a huge demonstration uh, by tens of thousands, mostly women, who were wearing these pink hats. And I won't say what they're called, these hats. Right. I'll self-censor myself. And, and the NYPD were protecting them while they were calling the president of the United States, all kinds of things and holding up placards. And, you know, that to me was a very powerful um, uh, image of how First Amendment freedoms, even though the, the, the wording of the First Amendment had not changed, but sort of the interpretation, the expansion of First Amendment um, um, freedoms had come to, you know, protect women, to claim a stake for, for, for equality. And, and whereas before they would be arrested if they challenged uh, patriarchal uh, power structures, they could do so with impunity uh, a, a century later. And you see the same thing when it comes to slavery, when it comes to Jim Crow uh, in, uh, in, 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 in this country where, you know, you had laws in the South in the 1830s that would prescribe the death penalty for, for, uh, for, for, for distributing or engaging in abolitionist uh, material, whereas an abolitionist like Frederick Douglass uh, advocated a universalist uh, free speech ideal that didn't depend on the color of your skin or the size of the of your wallet and who said that you know free speech is a very precious right especially to the oppressed and i think we've sort of unlearned that lesson uh, but i still think it's a lesson that is very very much true today yeah you, you talk a, a lot about uh, the history of women in this issue and and their vote etc cetera, etc cetera. and I, I think one of the things that's important in the fact that we're allowing more the the freedom to speak and the voiceless getting their voices I think is partially responsible for the other element of where, where the line is wanted to be drawn on free speech because a large number of women are saying, we want a safer space. We want, we want something that we're not so afraid of. And if, if, if men can't understand why that emotional part of their preferences is there, they, they don't know anything about history either. And so if, that, if that's the price, people say, well, we should pay that price. So if it's the price of of uh, minorities having a chance to say what they want to do, whether, whether it's a racial minority or a sexual orientation minority. Uh, people can say what they want to, but I think what's important is for each group to realize, as you just pointed out, that actually the, even though it has problems with it, it, mostly the cure is worse than the disease if you push away free speech. I yeah, think everybody no, can uh, recognize this important thing about, say, safe spaces at school, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But, but not, you, don't, you can have that and have free speech at the same time. Yeah, and, and of course, we have to make some distinguish. So, uh, you know, uh, female journalists who are threatened with rape or, right. or, or you know, that's obviously crossing uh, a line. And, and those who engage with that should, should be prosecuted. I, I agree. To, uh, I, I certainly uh, agree with that. Uh, I, and I also, but I also understand, uh, you know, women who engage in, in public debate or on social media who, who, you know, who are met with sort of outbursts that are, do not reach the threat threshold of, of threats or incitement to violence or, or, or the like, that, that it can be sort of a strong disincentive to participate in the public debate. The problem, I think, is when you push sort of centralized 
content moderation on, on big private tech platforms, or if you say the government has to, to step in, I think, uh, I, I think we should tinker much more with allowing users on social media, for instance, to have much more control over their own content rather than having Mark Zuckerberg decide centrally, um, you know, pushed by this interest group or the other, or sort of trying to sort of say, well, where would the you know, in today's uh, political atmosphere, where would where would I where where, where would I get the least you know uh, backlash if when I draw mm -hmm. the lines? Uh, so, so I think that would be a healthier way to 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 do it because obviously you know in, you know being on social media uh, does not mean that you have to listen to every crazy voice uh, out there. Mm -hmm. But but you know we're not going to get in agreement over whether content is offensive or not, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong, you know, it's, it's very human to be offended. The problem is that, you know, we have, we have big differences about whether uh, content is, is offensive or not. So if, so, so, so if you want that decided centrally uh, on big platforms with billions or hundreds of millions of users, you risk the lowest common denominator uh, being the decider. And, and that's why I think a more decentralized information environment on social media is sort of a more Solomonic solution than, than the current attempts to sort of push big tech platforms into policing everything centrally. Yeah, San Francisco is a, a good example by itself as a culture. I mean, it's, it's been pretty open and free for a long time, and there's a large other cultures in the, in the world uh, that find that extremely offensive, uh, that freedom. Um, but what goes with all the freedoms also goes with the liberty to have new thoughts and the creativity and, and the, the Silicon Valley whole engine is all part of the culture of a time. And you were talking before we were, we were chatting about how important the law is, but also even more important, how important the culture of, of freedom is. And you mentioned when you go back to Socrates that the Greeks were proud of the fact that they allowed free speech um, and that, that that was a new thing. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that really is, is one of the things that set the Athenian democracy uh, uh, apart. You know, if you read the great Athenian statements, Pericles, his, his famous funeral oration uh, that, that uh, many probably read in high school or college, um, mm. he talks uh, not only about, you know, why the Athenians have, are special because they have democracy where everyone has a vote, even though they're, even if they're poor, but also that they're sort of tolerant of each other's um, sort of uh, sides that might rub the other the, the, the wrong way. So, so they have a comparatively um, tolerant culture. Another great Athenian statement is called Demosthenes, and he says something which I think is, is true today, even though it was said maybe 2,300 years ago or so, um, he, he, he says, you know, the difference between Athens and their bitter rivals in Sparta was that in Athens, you could criticize the Athenian constitution and praise the Spartan constitution. But if you were in Sparta, you were not allowed to praise the Athenian constitution uh, uh, and you were certainly not allowed to, to criticize the, 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 uh, the, the, the Spartan one. And, and so I think that's still the litmus test of the core of free speech is that you're allowed to criticize the political system under which uh, you live. But in, in Athens, it was, it, it, to, to a large degree, more sort of a cultural trait rather than, you know, in the way that Madison would draft what became uh, the First Amendment. But of course, Madison's genius was that he saw the dangers and the deficiencies of the Athenian model of direct democracy where, 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 where the, you know, revenges, mobs, 
could 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 pass laws or or in you know in jury courts could convict someone because they didn't have individual rights in the same way that Madison conceived of them. They didn't have um, you know uh, checks and balances or uh, in, in, in independent judiciary in the same way that that the U.S. system uh, does. So so he he built on top of that. But as I mentioned, you know, so the the First Amendment was ratified in 1791. The wording hasn't changed, but throughout. Its history, the First Amendment has allowed, you know, uh, as I said, critics of the president of President Adams to be imprisoned, um, people to be to be to be uh, prosecuted for 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 insisting that slavery runs contrary to the Bible, mm-hmm. um, for protesting uh, for the rights to vote to, of women been thrown in prison for 10 to 20 years for opposing uh, American involvement in World War One, mm-hmm. uh, and so on and so on. Uh, and and what, has, what has changed, I think, uh, is to a large degree um, the culture of free speech. So it has become more permissive as, as, as these uh, abuses, if you like, um, have, have, have manifested themselves and, and people have become aware of, of the dangers of a narrow interpretation of, of the First Amendment. And that's why, you know, even someone like John Stuart Mill, when you read on liberty carefully, he's, you know, he talks more or at least as much about how, you know, free speech does not only depend on protection against the magistrate, but the tyranny of majority opinion being imposed on dissenters uh, is, is as, can be uh, as much of a tyranny um, as, 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 as restrictive laws. And so I think, you know, if the American culture of free speech um, deteriorates, if Americans start demanding uh, through partisan lenses more and more restrictions on free speech, chances are that some, you know, whether it's in 10 or 20 or 30 years, there'll be a Supreme Court majority that interprets the First Amendment in a very different way mm. than today, sort of maybe going back in time and reviving some of the old permissive restrictions. And then that, that, that'll at least be half the country who will be very uh, dissatisfied about where the, the lines are, are being drawn. Yeah. You know, I, for instance, you know, I would imagine that post 9-11, if the, if the First Amendment hadn't provided as strong a protection of, of free speech as it did. I think, you know, I could very well imagine that that in the in the in the atmosphere post 9-11 immediately there would have been passed all kinds of sort of sedition laws mm-hmm. that would have that would have made it uh, a crime to say and, and do things that could be seen as you know insufficiently patriotic or, or, or the like but mm-hmm. but as it were you know there was a strong legal protection of free speech that had really been built in the second half of the of the 20th century not least due to the efforts of the civil rights movement, who won a number of landmark cases mm-hmm. that really expanded the the protection of, of free speech, and and I I love this quote by the late congressman and, and civil rights icon John Lewis, who said something like, you know, without free speech uh, and the First Amendment, the civil rights movement uh, would have been a bird without wings, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 I think that history is really important uh, to sort of to to look at at, at current free speech issues through the prism of what went before uh, and the landmark achievements that 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 this uh, helped contribute to. Yeah, you mentioned in there about uh, cultural trades. And uh, one of the things that I think is, is going on um, is that we are. We are borrowing from China, their shaming culture while they're borrowing from us capitalism um, <laughs> and and 
and, and they're getting a little bit advantage out of that, and, and we're, we're kind of, and it's not that it's, it's a Chinese thing, it's a human thing, um, but they pushed it very far, and it kind of ties into our Puritan past, um, where, where the Puritans were kicked out of their country because they were, wanted to exercise their right uh, to, to speak about their religion and so on. But as soon as they got here, they made sure nobody else uh, could disagree with them. And, and the, all the colonies seemed to split up based upon which group it was that was excluding other groups uh, when they got started. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, you know that there's an apocryphal uh, quote from 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 Lenin. Some says something to the effect that you know the capitalist will sell us uh, the rope with which we'll hang him, yeah. and and I think you know that there's a little bit of of truth in that when you see sort of some of these Silicon Valley companies that initially were sort of very very much wedded to this civil libertarian techno utopian ideal of the internet bringing free speech to all corners of the world, and that yeah. censorship was sort of buried on the ash heap of, of history that, that, that was part of the 90s and, and early 2000s. And, and, and then you have sort of big American corporations helping China build the, the, the great uh, firewalls sort of Google secretly working on, on developing a search engine for the Chinese market that sort of incorporated the dictates of the Chinese Communist, Communist Party. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and I think that's a very, very dangerous, uh, dangerous uh, 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 development. But I, th- I think you're also right that at this very sort of hyper polarized time in America, um, each side, uh, this is of course a generalization, but tends to have their um, ways of, of trying to, uh, to to impose orthodoxy on the others. Um, so you can, so on the one hand, you have uh, attempts, for instance, at, at universities and colleges to have professors fired. I think the mm-hmm. Foundation for Individual Rights in Education fire has documented more than 500 cases of, of, of teachers and professors. Uh, attempts to have them uh, disciplined for for things they said since since 20, uh, 20, 2015. On the other hand, now we're seeing a tsunami of um, Republican-backed bills to oppose so-called critical race theory, which mm-hmm. not is not only limited sort of to to K twelve, but even to to sort of higher education, and that tries to basically ban divis- divisive concepts of race and gender, and and even sort of censor discussions of American history that do not really conform to what Republicans in, in these states think, uh, you know, th- their picture of, of, American, uh, of American history. I think that's an extremely dangerous uh, development because it eats away uh, at the culture of free speech from each side and then ultimately mm-hmm. sort of uh, the, the center might no longer hold. Um, so, so, so this is something I think... Uh, Americans should be concerned about. And, and, you know, to a large degree in open democratic societies, um, you know, free speech uh, advocacy means holding your nose and, and, yeah. and defending the principle of free speech for people that you really, really do not disagree with and, and whom you dislike. Uh, because that's basically the, the, where, where the line is, is you know, th- those who test free speech in open democratic societies will typically be those uh, whose views are the most unpopular. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and so you've got to be prepared to do that. But I think today we tend to be, it, 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 it has become difficult for many people to distinguish between defending the principle of free speech from the underlying speech that, mm-hmm. that, that, that someone is engaging in. And, and, and that, that sort of being able to distinguish between between the principle and 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 uh, and supporting the the actual speech is absolutely crucial 
In your book, you talk about, um, we were talking about the professors just a little while ago, you have a story about the University of Paris long, long ago um, shutting down some professors and then other uh, universities poaching those professors. Um, as, and you can give that as a warning to the schools that get too, too tough on their professors. So why, why don't you Yeah, yeah so this is all the way back to medieval times where yeah. um, um, sort of Aristotelian philosophy um, becomes uh, irresistible to, to these great uh, medieval scholars who, who really wants to use uh, pagan philosophy and, and reason to, 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 to a much larger degree than what was, that was permissible at the time. And initially, you know, the church and, and university authorities try to push back, but it's just impossible because these, you know, the, 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 the curiosity of these scholars is insatiable. And sort of mm -hmm. Aristotle is just, he, he, he just changes everything, um, mm -hmm. gives completely new, new perspectives. Uh, and then obviously, ultimately, sort of uh, Aristotelian philosophy becomes part of, of orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it it, it wins the day. Aquinas, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Thomas Aquinas, who, uh, who draws also on, on interestingly on, on on sort of the philosophical efforts of of, um, of Arab and Persian um, uh, Muslims who in, mm -hmm. in the Abbasid Caliphate um, which is an, an interesting story in an, in and of itself mm -hmm. um, and, but we see we see that pushback at, at universities throughout history we also see it you know interestingly um, you know, in the era immediately prior to the Civil War, in the 1850s, sort of University of of North Carolina, I believe, there's a there's a professor of chemistry there called Benjamin Hendricks, and and he uh, he openly supports John Fremont, so so the first Republican pres presidential candidate who's who's opposed to slavery, or at least the expansion of slavery, mm. and he is uh, he's burned in effigy on campus. Students demand and parents demand that he is be that he should be fired. And interestingly, you have the wording used in newspapers and and and, and by the trustees is that it is. It is it is it is uh, dangerous and unsafe to have uh, someone like Hendricks, like someone voicing Black Republican opinions, mm -hmm. uh, to instruct the the, the youth. So, it, so, it, so so the language is is basically mirroring some of that which you see today, mm -hmm. where some students and, and even faculty say, you know, that it's that 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 it's dangerous or um, you know we need a safe environment uh, mm -hmm. at campuses and 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 that specific opinions danger endanger in, in the, the the safety of of of, of students, um, uh, even though they would be, you know, even even though they they would perhaps, you know, think that it's, uh, you know, they 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 come at it from sort of an anti-racist uh, and inclusive uh, agenda, whereas the University of North Carolina is very openly a sort of a, a white supremacy <laughs> uh, 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 agenda. But but I think it's interesting to see this continuum in in. In the use of arguments uh, used to try and limit the, the permissible speech in universities, you even saw it sort of 1917. Columbia fired two professors for who were against American involvement in World War One, and you had the right. New York Times publishing an editorial praising the trustees of Columbia mm -hmm. for getting rid of these dangerous socialist radicals who abused academic freedom to, to sort of poison the minds of of, of students. Uh, um, and, and and I think that sort of these cases should give pause to those who, you know, think that it's a sign of progress to sort of police the speech of, uh, of, of professors and, and, uh, and, and, and teachers at universities. Yeah. Um, 
you the frame part of the framework of your book uh, to go back to what you've mentioned it is the difference between uh, say the top-down roman republic approach to to free speech and the uh, more egalitarian version from uh, athens and uh one thing you mentioned we, we have the british empire and then the americans kind of take over and now europe uh, is is, is uh, very influential and i was just wondering where in europe you feel that it's more the egalitarian approach? Is it in smaller countries? And, and because, because even though America made a big experiment out of this, as we always say, um, the experiment has been taking place in lots of other countries uh, for yeah. a long time. And, and maybe we should start learning from some of the things that are done there. So if you have an angle on that uh, coming from Denmark, we, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, no, uh, you know, I think uh, there are lots of things that <laughs> the U.S. can learn from from various European uh, countries. But on you know the legal regulation of free speech, I, I don't. I think the the tendency in Europe to me is very concerning. So so there's been uh, really uh, um, for the past decade or so an in, sort of increasing number of laws restricting free speech on a number of issues that would that would fly in the face of the First Amendment in this country. And, and very much, I think, social media, especially probably after the 2016 U.S. presidential election and Brexit, uh, so you, very much um, European um, approach of, of sort of el an elitist concept of free speech, sort of a desperate attempt to, to impose some kind of top-down control of the of the public uh, sphere um but of course there have been you know european trailblazers of free speech i would say that the dutch republic mm -hmm. was was sort of an uh, in in the in the 17th century even in the late 16th century you saw uh dutch thinkers who advanced sort of uh, a free speech uh, early on but but the the dutch republic was was a, a place where you know it was not egalitarian free speech by our standards but but compared to most other places on the on the continent very much so and it was not due to laws uh it was not due to a constitutional protection it was that the dutch provinces had a large degree of self rule so there was a very weak uh, political uh, center, uh, and and you know the Dutch were were great fans of commerce. So there was also sort of this aspect. You know, you could produce books that were banned in other European countries, and you could sort of smuggle them across borders. And also, mm -hmm. one province might benefit from another province intolerance, and and printers could simply skip uh, skip lines uh, and and, um, and 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 then uh, uh, make money. But there was also a more sort of cosmopolitan atmosphere in, in cities uh, like. Like Amsterdam, for instance, and and that's why you see, you know, uh, Rene Descartes, you you had uh, uh, Spinoza, you had uh, John Locke, you had Pierre Bayle, sort of great free thinkers who mm -hmm. who contributed to the idea of, of of freedom of conscience and and freedom of expression, uh, who who you know made uh, the the Dutch Republic their home, uh, this little piece of windswept uh, yeah. country in, in a corner of, 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 of Europe became sort of the printing printing hub of, of Europe and the first place where sort of newspapers catering to the ordinary uh, man and uh, yeah, mostly man uh, was, 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 was developed. Uh, so, so I think there are great roots there uh, in, in, uh, in, 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 in the Dutch Republic. But by modern standards, I, I really, I don't think that, that, that the U.S. should look to Europe uh, because I think uh, even European democracies are very much contributing to what I call 
the free speech recession uh, that I see going on at, mm-hmm. at, at the global level, where free speech is is sort of it, we might still be living in a golden age of free speech, but it's a golden age that is in decline, mm-hmm. uh, and and unfortunately, democratic Europe is, is contributing to that. I'd just like to remind our live stream audience that if you have any questions for Jacob, you can just put them in the chat room and we'll try to ask them. Um, you mentioned at the same time as the Dutch Republic uh, that the Mughal Empire uh, in, in uh, India, uh, a Muslim empire, uh, yeah. was actually more open at that time than probably any other culture. It's still maybe not open by our standards, but certainly had, had a lot more freedom um, in the 17th century after Akbar. So um, that builds a little bit upon the, the small time frame in Baghdad, maybe about 100 years uh, after the Muslims had succeeded and maybe were feeling very confident, and then they also opened up uh, their society to new ideas. So why don't you talk about that? Because I think it's always useful to find out uh, that in other cultures, other times, they also had these you know, movements towards it and then away from it again. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's especially um, associated with with Akbar the Great, uh, this ruler who, you know, I think scholars disagree on whether he actually left Islam or not. Uh, I think uh, some some would argue that he did, but he certainly was not <laughs> an orthodox Muslim, and he, he enraged sort of the uh, the the the, the religious uh, scholars of his time by developing this sort of eclectic religion mm-hmm. uh, that that where he sort of took a dash uh, from all all religions and, and and mixed it together and he also created sort of a, a, a you know he he t- took the sting out of uh, a lot of the sort of harsh Islamic uh, laws that that the Mughals were 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 imposing on society um, and and um, and he created sort of a Sort of an early think tank you could call religious think tank, and 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 sort of extolled reason uh, and 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 freedom of conscience. Now he didn't, you know, he was he was still sort of a uh, a military uh, absolutist ruler. So mm-hmm. it's not that he allowed free political speech, but 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 it was certainly sort of religious freedom that that was very much ahead of its time mm-hmm. um and and allowed for for you know discussion of of religious uh, heterodoxy that that would you wouldn't really find in in Europe uh, at uh, at the time i think one of the weaknesses of of his rule even though sort of religious tolerance would would continue um if in diminished forms after his uh, his death was that it was very much a top-down approach. Mm-hmm. So it didn't really create this culture of free speech. It was very much uh, Akbar's uh, ideas. And then, you know, when they didn't, because it wasn't sort of a, a bottom-up approach, it didn't really catch on uh, 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 among among the masses, uh, perhaps. And so it was, it was quite uh, vulnerable. In the same way that you see in the 18th century, during the Enlightenment, a lot of European rulers, absolutist rulers, were sort of taken, smitten with the idea of, of free speech. So yeah. Frederick, Frederick the Great in, in Prussia, or Catherine and Catherine the Great in Russia, even um, Joseph II in, 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 in Austria, sort of these absolutist, enlightened absolutists who thought that, you know, they could use free speech, uh, at least for the elite, to sort of cultivate progress, uh, philosophy, uh, science, uh, and so on. And then once the the French Revolution sort of breaks out, there's a complete uh, uh, change of things, and 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 uh, and everyone sort of looks at free speech as this 
recipe for disaster or for, mm. for radicalism. And you see even basically until the, the, the second half of the, the 19th century in, in Europe, uh, at least, you see a clampdown on, on, on free speech. Uh, all uh, all the way, uh, but it, but it's it's true with the Mughal uh, Empire. It, it, there was a high degree of, of religious tolerance, and even in Europe, you, you know, if you go to Transylvania, if you go to the Polish uh, Lithuanian Commonwealth, they had sort of quasi constitutional protections of religious freedom that went much further than than what uh, was uh, the norm in in Western Europe, uh, where, where we tend to think of religious uh, freedom having its sort of uh, uh, um, genesis. It'd be useful, I think, to, to uh, understand both the way Russia and China in their semi-post-communist sort of, but still very authoritarian way, um, have adopted some ideas for freedom in terms of economic freedom, but not for political freedom. It's very much like these other absolutist rulers from the past that take in one idea or another, experiment with it, and then say, oh, we didn't want that to happen. Um, it's it's uh, just so common in history. Um, yeah, yeah. I think you know. Um, I think after the death of Mao, there was sort of a small, very small uh, period in, in 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 China where the idea was that you know the, the Mao's rule had been such a disaster in many ways mm-hmm. um, that they needed new ideas uh, and and they needed some degree of free speech from the people to to get new and better ideas, but also to to allow people a certain voice and they experimented a little bit with that but then when criticism turned towards the party um that was sort of quickly uh, put under put under uh you know that that was clamped down on and then of course with the um uh massacre that 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 was the the end of any sort of uh experiment with with free speech in in china and i think you know the current Chinese government is, is, you know, I think it's it's sort of a battle prop between between Stalin's Soviet Union and, and Xi Jinping's China, on, on which government has been the most oppressive and, and most censorious, sort of on a systematic uh, level. And I think the Chinese are, are probably winning that winning that contest. So let's talk about probably one of the most difficult, uh, because it's so um, painful. Uh, ways that drawing this line on freedom exists in Europe right now, and that's in Germany. Because yeah. in Germany has this history of uh, Nazi. Uh, the Nazi history is worse than our slavery history uh, in terms of just total destruction of people, etc., etc. Um, and so after World War II was over, uh, they passed not free speech laws. People cannot mention anything. You cannot show a, a Nazi swastika, etc. Now that's been going on, and, and and certainly, one could argue that that helped shift their culture away from that faster than if they hadn't done that. But now we're talking 70 years later. So is there a time when that can be... Fa- do you prefer or would you advise, if you were an advisor to the German government, that it's now time to phase that out? Um, yeah, it's, it's something that in the book I call the Weimar fallacy. And so to a large degree... European laws against hate speech, for instance, are, uh, and, and, and sort of extreme um, expressions are very much based on the premise that because the Weimar Republic 
this sort of short democracy between 1918 and, and 1933 fell, and the and and the Nazis were sort of democratically elected and and were participated in in, in the public sphere during Weimar Republic. That it, democracies have to be militant, sort of this this based on the ideas of a German immigrant professor called Karl Lewenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and 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 so that's the idea. But I, you know, in the book, I look at what what was the what was the atmosphere like for free speech during the Weimar Republic. Now, in many ways, of course, the Weimar Republic was very liberal, uh, so it had a constitutional protection of mm-hmm. press freedom, um, and and uh, so so much wider protection than than under uh, under Bismarck that that went uh, the, the empire that went before but in many ways it actually limited free speech in ways that we would find unacceptable today so for instance um when it comes to radio it was it was essentially government uh, pro government censorship so nazis and communists did not have access to the radio there were a number of laws to protect the republic that were passed that w- would allow um, uh, state uh, governments to uh, to to administratively ban a newspaper for up to eight weeks if it uh, disseminated false information or attacked the institutions of the state, mm-hmm. and and these were also used against Nazi newspapers. And you know Adolf Hitler was banned from speaking in a number of of states for mm-hmm. for for years. So Josef Goebbels, who later became the propaganda minister, founded this newspaper called the Angriff, which is basically based on trolling uh, Jews, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and he sort of proudly proclaimed his newspaper to be the most frequently banned newspaper in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, Julius Streicher, who was the, um, who founded Das Stürmer, the most sickening anti-Semitic newspaper in, 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 in the Third Reich, um, he was sentenced to two months uh, imprisonment in 1929 for for, for publishing these uh, anti-Jewish blood libels. And uh, a year later, you know, in Nuremberg, his hometown where he was convicted, the Nazis gained an, an increased share of uh, of the vote. So, mm-hmm. in a in a sense, you know, the 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 Weimar Republic in many ways did vigorously try to use censorship and restrictions on free speech to uh, prohibit totalitarian uh, ideologies, but it it didn't succeed. And ultimately, the Nazis used the laws that were supposed to protect democracy to abolish democracy. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, and I think that's a warning uh, that uh, current democracy should heed. I'm I'm sorry if you hear some noise. Um, I'm in a hotel and and there's a vacuum cleaner in the the background. It's it's way in the background. It's it's not not disturbing anything. Okay, Um, thanks. Yeah, it's, uh, I thought it was very interesting the way you laid it out because, uh, as you said, Hitler was able to say, now you're yelling at, at me, uh, but you didn't, you know, for free speech, but you didn't give me free speech before, and therefore yeah, and you're, I, you're being hypocritical. And, uh, and of course, you know, he, I thought he it was, was also interesting that he got everyone to tie in by saying, let's get rid of those, you know, social, socialists and the communists. And so he got all the right-wing parties to agree with that, and as soon as he finished them, he turned to turned to them and shut down the other ones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so so uh, basically, he uh, he, uh, you're right. I mean, you know, if you go back to some of the first one of the first speeches he gave back all the way back in 1920, uh, it's quite clear that Adolf Hitler never had any. A love for free speech. He wanted, you know, the, the the press to be limited to sort of uh, 
Germans, uh, nationals, he, he, he thought that they were sort of a lying press uh, dominated by Jews and, and, and Marxists and, and so on. So, so he was completely insincere. But it sort of the idea that the fact that the Nazis had been the victims, if you like, of free speech restrictive laws allowed him sort of the argument of what a boundary um, saying, you know, okay, I'm, I'm, what am I doing differently than, 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 than you're doing? And, he, and, you know, until the Reichstag fire decree, which, which, which basically suspended li basic liberties, the, the Germans sort of built on existing laws when censoring their, mm -hmm. their, their, uh, their opponents. And as you rightly said, you know, the, 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 there was a huge appetite for going after communists and socialists uh, among many Germans who were deeply worried uh, about the potential for a, a communist takeover. And he could use that to get support for punishing them. And then ultimately, he, you know, within six months, he, um, he, he had created a, a, a totalitarian one-party state in which he uh, had convinced the other sort of right-wing uh, parties uh, to, to abolish themselves um, and, and, and sort of a wave of political suicide, if you like, of, of, of political uh, parties. Um, and, and, and so I think that, you know, and, and I think it's really important not to try and understand the history of the Weimar Republic and the Third Reich through the sort of reductionist narrow lens of free speech and censorship. There are so many other things um, prob uh, and factors, and many of them probably more important. But I think if, you, if your argument is that we need to limit free speech in order to avoid the rise of new Nazi parties, uh, then I think the Weimar Republic uh, is not does not gi give strength to that to 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 those arguments. Right. Um, and I think you know those who want to limit free speech in open democracies should have the burden of proof <laughs> that these laws will actually work and not lead to to negative unintended consequences. You call uh, democracy and free speech a counterintuitive cultural development by the thing, and it's counterintuitive to people what we what you just said. But the history shows that. And I think if it, if it shows it in the case of the Nazi rise to power, there's nothing that dangerous going on in our own societies today that matches th that kind of danger. And so we're already, we're already willing to, to, to you know, move the line when it doesn't even work when it's even worse. And I think it's a, yeah, it's yeah. a really important lesson. Yeah, but I think, you know, when, you know, whenever you're faced by a threat, you know, I, I like to think of human beings as sort of, you know, the original software that we've uh, evolved uh, and that we're born with. Uh, I think its default mode is, uh, is set on intolerance. And then we've, <laughs> we, 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 we've, we've built uh, gradually this patch or update, which is called free speech and, and tolerance on top of it. Uh -huh. But, you know, unless it's vigorously, um, you know, protected, uh, the, the the default mode will try to override it, and and uh, our uh, you know, and will switch back to to intolerance, and and especially when you know we feel that uh, that there's a high degree of uncertainty when you feel that there's you know polarization when you feel under threat, uh, and then you can convince yourself that uh, maybe today the degree of polarization and partisanship in the U.S. is as big a threat as what you know. I've certainly seen that analogy a number of times in the U.S. that. Mm what's going on right now in your country is somewhat analogous to what went on in, in the Weimar Republic, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is uh, quite a bit of a stretch given
than that uh, dem democracy has, has a lot uh, a longer history than than what it did in Germany uh, yeah. at the time uh, that we were not in the middle of the of of, of the uh, of, of, of of the Russian Revolution that you know we were not you know just emerged from um, uh, World War One where, where Germans had been defeated and so on and so forth. But but I will grant this you know free speech is an experiment you know mm -hmm. there's no guaranteeing that the outcome will always be positive uh, the, you know it, it might well be that one day someone uh, grabs power through the use of, of free speech and uh, and and your republic will uh, will, will will no longer stand who who can who can who, who can there's no guarantee but what i can what i would be able to bet on is that if someone was to use free speech to gain power in order to to finish American democracy, the very first thing such a person would try to do was to abolish free speech. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and 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 I think you know it's 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 interesting to compare sort of Trump with with uh, with Putin. You know, both of them were, at least in my opinion, people, uh, presidents with, with very illiberal tendencies that tried to subvert democratic norms and, and, and the rule of law, of course, to various degrees. But, you know, Donald Trump was ultimately powerless in punishing the media, in locking up his political opponents. Uh, in fact, some of them became media stars due to their criticism, mm -hmm. um, uh, whereas Putin has been in power since 2000, and he's used state power to kill, imprison journalists and create sort of uh, a, 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 a power structure based on official propaganda and censorship. And so if the First Amendment was instrumental in the rise of Trump to the presidency, I think it was also instrumental in removing him from office again. And then, mm -hmm. you know, we can pick up the conversation uh, at the end of 2024. <laughs> <laughs> May hope not, but probably... Well, uh, first, thank you very much for um, your help in trying to keep that patch on top of our normal, our natural intolerance uh, alive. And uh, we have one question in from the uh, audience, uh, from Doug Threloff. He said, can Jacob talk about the concept that a free press is essentially the fourth branch of government and discuss the significance of the impact of the ruling on Sarah Palin? Um, that's his question. Now, mm. you, you were just talking about the free press. So, yeah. so how, how do you think this free speech, free press, the, the two different rights uh, connect with each other? Yeah, so um, I'm not an expert on the First Amendment, but for, and I just saw sort of a, a, a sort of a very brief segment, I think, on CNN uh, that uh, the, the, a judge sort of dismissed the, the, the defamation suit by Sarah Palin against New York Times. And that is, I believe, based on the, uh, you know, the New York Times versus Sullivan case, uh, from 1964, which sets a very, very high bar for for when public officials can successfully sue um, not only media outlets but anyone who criticizes them uh, in, in 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 public. Uh, and, and interestingly, that's also a civil rights era case because it, it used to be the case that you know uh, southern authorities would use libel and defamation laws to go after critics so if they made sort of a small mistake in their reporting they could threaten them with lawsuits that could sort of cripple them and and so new york times versus Salon sets a very very high bar for that and i think that's ultimately a, a good thing um i think you know the, the new york times acknowledged that they had gotten you know that they had 
um, you know, published something that was incorrect, but, mm -hmm. you know, there wasn't, I think maybe the, the standard is something like uh, actual malice. So, so, you know, they acknowledged that, that they had been factually wrong and, 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 and printed a correction. And that, um, I guess, is why uh, Sarah Palin is, is unsuccessful. Now, compare that to France, where President Macron um, you know, someone was fined uh, the equivalent of eleven thousand dollars for for producing a billboard showing Macron basically looking like Adolf Hitler as part of anti-COVID um, demonstrations. Now, imagine in this country, how many people, how, you know, how, how many people could get sued <laughs> if they if they if they protested uh, the current or the previous uh, president uh, as someone who was totalitarian. You know, mm -hmm. it would be an endless stream of of. So I think it's I think it's uh, you know I prefer that uh, free speech protects hyperbole and, and bad faith arguments uh, uh, and, and that you really have to have a really high bar for public officials and, and the powerful to be able to sue people who, uh, who say things about them that, that they don't like. Uh, I think that's, you know, if you're a, a powerful public uh, official, you know, that's part of the costs of, of the power that you're exercising on, on behalf of the people, that the people whom you represent uh, and in whose name you rule and, and are able to sort of pass laws or enforce uh, laws uh, have a right to criticize you vehemently. And, you know, sometimes that will hurt. But uh, but 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 that's yeah that that's part of, uh, of of the price of that because I think you know if you give the press or even ordinary people a disincentive you make them afraid to shine a critical light mm -hmm. on public officials I think the, the the consequences of that will be worse because you risk not exposing some of the inevitable corruption and and uh, dirty deeds uh, uh, and and uh, sort of. Um, that that uh, public officials uh, commit and have always uh, committed, and 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 it will ultimately, I think, risk also, you know, uh, creating an incentive for public officials to to be less afraid of committing uh, illegal acts or, or corruption or or the like, uh, because uh, you know, hopefully they'll they fear they'll fear that they, if they do so, the the press will be shining a critical light on them. Yeah, it's just about the very definition of a slippery slope, as we say in the law. You know, I mean, you, you, if you don't hold that standard way up there, anything you start moving it, the next thing is because, because as you said, the natural tendency is for all of us to be authoritarian. Yeah, and, <laughs> we and want the world you know, to be the way we want it to be. You know? and, and you know, traditionally, you know, the New York Times versus Sullivan case turns on the head the way that. Um, speech, uh, you know, rulers, laws on on speech have 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 worked throughout history. Traditionally, um, speech codes, if you like, have tr protected the rulers against their subjects, mm -hmm. not the other way around. Mm -hmm. The First Amendment uh, and free speech is there to protect the people against <laughs> against the abuses of, of their rulers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very important principle to, to safeguard. And, and inevitably, that will give rise to, 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 to speech uh, that is uh, hyperbolic. Some of it will, will be misleading and, and false. But, you know, I think that's, that's a price worth paying. 
Yeah, on humanity's long road to democracy, which we're kind of just getting started on. I mean, a democracy where every individual gets to do what they want to the extent that they're not violating somebody else's, uh, you know, will too, and that there are no differences based on anything. Uh, we're, we're so far from that, but the, it's absolutely crucial if we're going to get there to, to keep these principles in mind. Um, because we're not going to get there without it. And we'll get there with lots of bumps. And you, as you said, the cure is worse than the disease. And it's hard when the bumps are there, when the, when the cure seems like it could work, um, to remember that. But, but we have to keep reminding ourselves or we're not going to get to where we wanted to go. So thank you very much, Jacob, for joining us. Um, and and uh, good luck with the book. And thank, thank you, you so all much. very much for joining us at the Commonwealth Club in its 120th now year of enlightened discussion. Hope to see you again soon. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.